Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 11 of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre. With me is Z. Not with us is Anti. Uh, he had some uh, previous arrangements. Um, you may notice that our Discord icons aren't really moving at the moment. That's because there's a bit of a issue with Streamlabs. So, uh, well, with a stream kit like Discord. Stream kit, sorry, yeah. Discord provides us the overlay and. Their whole stream kit stuff is down, so you just get to stare at the two static images for this stream. Yep. And also on top of that, uh, this will be our last stream for a little while, for a few months. Uh, Z's going on a, a trip around the world. No, not really. Uh, he's going on a hike. Uh, so we are going to be continuing the podcast. Um, we so we've obviously we've done 10 episodes we like where it's going so we're going to continue doing it um it's just that z had this previous commitment before uh, we started up the podcast so yeah i'll toss on there like i'll be gone if if things go well i'll be gone for five to six months uh during that time i mean we we talked about what we do we wanted to kind of keep the podcast going but you know, just ended up deciding that maybe it wasn't best to just have Spectre monologuing. You know, it would be a significant change to the style. So yeah. since I've had this planned, I mean, we'll, we like kind of how the podcast is done. We've shown at least to ourselves that's something we can routinely do. It's it's something we'll definitely keep off. But yeah, for this next period, since I had already planned to be leaving, uh, I'm not going to stick around just for the podcast. And I mean, if things don't go well for me, maybe I'll be back in just a month. Yeah, just like the last couple of years. <laughs> well, the last, I mean, I've stayed out for longer, but yeah, I've had injuries within the first couple months. Yeah. So, you know, this this will be our, our last episode for a little while. But like Z said, we do plan to try to put out other media. Uh, also, we're, we're probably we're going to be trying to do like a blog. Uh, we'll put out a link to that, you know, uh, later on when we get more posts on there. Um, we'll We'll post it on like the Twitter and stuff like that. So. Yeah, and hopefully um, we'll see some YouTube media coming out. Uh, more, yeah. less streaming content and more just uh, video content. More just other content, I guess is what we'll say. Yeah, we'll we'll leave it at that for now. We'll uh, we'll get more into it when it gets closer towards that. Um, so yeah, just follow Twitter for updates on stuff like that. And uh, yeah, so I guess we can, you know, head out of the me the meta discussion and go into the uh, you you took a course. Yeah, um, I mean, I to be fair, I, I took the course less um, because I felt like I really needed this training and more just out of an interest out of, one, what they're actually teaching for the course itself and the quality of the certification. So, yeah, I recently kind of went through, took, I took the course actually a couple months ago, but they just opened the exam up for registration, the um, offensive security web expert i think is what they're calling the certification the courses there yeah, advanced OSWE. web attacks and exploitation yeah. um so as you can guess by the name it's a course focused on the web attacks web attacks and exploitation in terms of like the content coverage so there is a syllabus actually on towards the end of the page there's a syllabus link that you can kind of see exactly what's being covered uh in fact okay I'm just going to open that now. That way I don't necessarily share anything I shouldn't about what's covered. <laughs> so one yeah, thing is, offensive security is pretty tight-lipped on 
what information they kind of let get out about anything. So if you're caught sharing more information than you should about the course, about the exam, uh, they'll just uh, basically invalidate your certification and ban uh, you from getting it. Yeah, more. ban you from getting it, potentially even ban the company like that you worked for from getting certifications. Or at least Ooh. I've heard that. Um, I haven't actually seen that confirmed. But yeah, so... So, of course, I don't want to cause any problems. But essentially... I mean, the in terms of the course content, I'll just say it's kind of meh. It, it covers, you know, a few of the important topics. Obviously, cross-site scripting's in there. It doesn't really cover... Like, it expects you to more or less know about cross-site scripting already. Uh, blind SQL injection remote code execution stuff and serialization attacks are basically the gist of the course the coverage is like yeah okay it covers some things but there's gaps between that like which i can kind of forgive just given that it is an advanced or supposed to be an advanced course so yeah okay so there's some gaps in because they're just covering kind of the uh higher level in terms of difficulty techniques they're not trying to introduce you to absolutely everything uh, what disappointed me was the lack of SSRF, uh, any sort okay. of server-side request forgery stuff, which is kind of an up-and-coming area, but I, they do include serialization attacks, which I was pleasantly surprised to see, uh, which is kind of the hot topic right now uh, with the Jackson data bind vulnerabilities, and you know, a lot more of those are being found just with serialization, so it's nice to see that covered here. So. I know they kind of gave this whole course a bit of a revamp in the last couple of years, but the course itself is fairly old. I don't know if the serialization stuff was included when they started with the course or if that's been added now or uh, what. I kind of went into it expecting uh, it to be fairly old. And I mean, yeah, a lot of the stuff is still kind of old, but I mean, there's value in just kind of having everything together for you. There's gaps. I mean, the content of the teach or the quality of the teachings it's reasonable like it's i didn't feel like they taught anything poorly uh okay. there are free places that you can go to learn all this like there's no reason why you need this course uh that's, of the cert. yeah yeah and i'll touch on the cert, but like in terms of the course in terms of learning from it like it doesn't have a lab environment like oscp does where you kind of have this big open environment where you can just have a bunch of applications that are vulnerable and you have to find the vulns, you have to find out how to exploit them and like work your way in. Oh, that this just has the exploits that are mentioned in here, so like the app mail server appliance, like they mentioned a tutor above. Like they just have the lab is just some servers running these for you to try exactly the attacks that are described in the course content in the lab. There's no mystery, there's no discovery. You're just doing it all uh, kind of exactly as it's shown in the course content. So that, I think, is a huge kind of downside to the course. And it's the same with OSCE. And I'm going to assume that OSE, uh, their exploit, those are their two other uh, binary exploit courses, are mm -hmm. kind of the same way. Uh, the lab doesn't include this big thing like OSCP does. Uh, so oh, okay. So that's... I mean, if they had that, that would actually make this extremely valuable, I think, having that sort of lab environment. Yeah. The lack of it, though, it kind of just leaves me thinking, you know, you could basically take this course material, look up these same exploits, and do it yourself. Oh. Okay, so I was about to ask, um, 
you know, certificate aside, uh, do you think the course is worth their asking price, which is like fourteen hundred dollars or whatever? And I'm guess I'm guessing from what you said, it's probably going to be a no. <laughs> well. I mean, it really depends on the person. There's always that benefit to having everything already set up for you. You don't need to do any of the legwork when you go through the course. They have it set up. They have, and they have it set up exactly the right way for you to be able to follow along with them. No guesswork, no need to figure things out, no need to manage your own mail server for one of them. There's a huge benefit to that. If, you, if somebody feels that the cost is worthwhile... Uh, to not need to do that legwork. Like, it, it teaches things fine. The quality of the uh, teaching content is not bad at all. Okay. I mean, so it can be worthwhile. Personally, for me, uh, for the course itself, I wouldn't. But at the same time, I've also been doing this for, you know, the better part of a decade. I, I mean, this wasn't anything new to me anyhow. That's fair. So that is kind of a bit of a bias as to like, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't going to be as useful for you from the start, right? Where you've already done it for. Yeah, but even imagining if I were new and learning. I, I still don't know if I, well, I wouldn't want to drop the money off, period, just because it is like, I mean, it's a reasonable price. I don't think they're asking like trying to, I mean, it's not a sense course. They're not asking like six grand for it. <laughs> I, yeah. I can give them that benefit. The, the pricing is fair if you think there's going to be that value. There are f kind of free resources, but on that note, I actually really struggle because obviously I've kind of, because this is a really new exam, really new course, I've tried to open myself up to have questions asked on Reddit and stuff. And the one thing I've kind of come across is I don't really have any recommendations for these types of issues, like on books or anything like that that you can go to. I mean, normally there's the Web Application Hacker's Handbook. That would be my go-to recommendation for pretty much everything web. The nice thing about this course, though, is it's really focused more or less on like specific attacks that you can do and more on chaining things, on building an exploit that's specific to the application you're targeting. So rather than just like here's blind SQL injection, here's, you know, an RCE attack, here's some little trick with zip files or something. It's, you know, here's the XSS. Now, how can you use that to, say, introduce a vulnerability elsewhere by modifying, you know, configurations um, or leaking sensitive information through one means or another? It has a lot of chained attacks, which I think are kind of interesting. Think like LFI to RCE style attacks. Uh, where you're kind yeah. of taking one issue, chaining it to get something much more severe. And so the fact they've done the legwork here to find some good vulnerabilities to, to show uh, some of these things, like there's value in that. I definitely won't say there's no value to the course. And I struggle to actually come with recommendations besides paying attention to actual vulnerabilities out there and just experience. I mean, a big part of it is just having some experience trying to attack the applications and you just kind of pick up on like, oh, yeah, you could chain things like now that you have this, you just start seeing it, um, which is basically yeah. just how I learned, which is experience. Oh, yeah. Like the hands on, like trying to struggle through it and stuff is a lot more valuable than I think some people realize. Yeah, which I um, mean, the lab gives you some of that. That's where I think having a blind lab where you don't know the vulnerabilities going into it, though would make the course much more valuable if it had that OSCP style lab. Yeah, definitely. So just um, for anybody, or sorry, you have a question. I'll let you ask that. 
Oh no, that's okay. You can continue. I'll uh, I'll I'll talk after your. Okay. Uh, I was just going to mention for anybody that has or isn't familiar. So I haven't actually done OSCP despite talking about it. I've known a good number of people who have. It's probably Offensive Security's most popular course and certification. And what they have is this huge lab environment. So the course itself is kind of network pen testing. It covers like a little bit of web, a little bit of binary, but like super basic level. Uh, think you know. The simplest SQL injections or very straightforward buffer overflows and mostly just using existing vulnerabilities. Uh, but they have this huge lab of like 50 machines or something, probably more. I don't know the number. But they have a large lab environment where you don't know how to get into all these boxes, but you're expected to break into them just by using kind of the methodology they teach and stuff. And that I think is hugely valuable for somebody trying to learn that stuff. Uh, so the fact that this certification doesn't have that, and I don't think any of their other certifications actually have that style of lab. Uh, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I can we can take a look, uh, just a quick look to see, because I think they do directly mention if it has a, a, a lab or not. Um, well, so I'm all of them have the a lab. Uh, it's oh, just that like the lab like isn't video. like uh, the lab in OSCP. Oh, okay. So, like, all of them do have a lab environment that you get access to. But in the case of this course, the Advanced Web Exploit course, the lab was just running the machines, or just running the software that you knew was vulnerable from the course material. It wasn't running anything new. It wasn't running anything for you to attack blind. Yeah. Uh, and that would kind of be my biggest issue. I know OSCE is exactly the same way. Um, as is OSWP, their waifu, their Wi-Fi course. <laughs> their waifu course? <laughs> well, they call it W-I-F-U, if you actually look. Oh, okay. Oh, wow, okay. Oh. I thought you were making a bit of a joke there. <laughs> no, actually, if you take a look here at their online courses, it's... Oh, yeah, they do call wireless it attacks. That wasn't by accident. Um. <laughs> but um, no, I have been generally speaking, only OSP really has a big lab. I feel like that's definitely a challenge in terms of the cost. I mean, again, okay. like I've, I've said before, the course quality is fine. I just think getting experience, play some CTFs, whatever. You can learn a lot of this already. Look at the syllabus. Look at the exploits yourself, too, is also an option. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, though, that you get uh, through offensive security isn't just the course, possibly more valuable as a certification. It, they've taken years to kind of get to the place where they're at now. Uh, so yeah. I initially took OSCE back in like 2014 or 2015, one of the two. And I mean, that, at that time, it was like the hype had already been established that OSCP was a cert that you kind of wanted to grab for breaking into information security i don't really care about network pen testing i'm more into the exploit stuff so i took a look at osc back then and i mean i was like my os id when you kind of pass or i think when you register you get an id that's basically just an integer incrementing uh was in the low tens of thousands uh, okay like i was in the teens basically uh now i think they're up in like the 50 thousands so, like, in the last few years, they've grown a heck of a lot more than they grew in those first years before I had uh, taken a look at it. Yeah, so I do have a bit of a question about that, though. Um, you might have more insight on this than I. How valuable is the cert in the industry? 
So if like you can break up uh, the industry into a few different areas. Like red teaming would be one area, network pen testing, um, and like application specific pen testing or appsec. Uh, I mean, you could break things down yet yeah, further, physical, and um, yeah, if you want to start including the defensive side of things too. Uh, so OSCP is very much an entry level network pen testing certification. It deals a little bit with like your application style attacks, but like the big idea with that one is like it's meant for your entry level pen tester, and it's just that it's an entry level pen testing certification you're not really getting a job because you have it um and that that i think would be true of uh this one also but i'll touch on that a little bit later uh but in general on the offensive side of security certifications are not the big deal okay. uh they they can help especially if you have like nothing else to really point to i mean if you haven't gone and published any cvs if you don't have any under your belt um, if you don't have like any CTF wins or even just part of a team, any write-ups or anything like that, if you don't have anything else, okay, a cert can help. Although to be fair, um, like if I were to apply somewhere for like AppSec style testing, which is most of what I do, I wouldn't want to list OSCP on it. Uh, just cause you have other things that are more. Well, important. I was going to say because OSCP is extremely entry level and network pen testing, whereas I'm more on the AppSec side. I'm more like finding O-Days, not just using them. Okay. Uh, so OSCP has a mixed reputation, like better than nothing. But I know the co-founder of Metsano Security. I don't know if I'm actually saying that right. I've only ever really read their name. Uh, but they did like... Um, Oh, what was it? A micro corruption CTF. Uh, they're the guys that made that. Uh, yeah. Co-founder there said, like, if he sees OSCP on someone's resume, it knocks them down a little bit. Um, and the huh. big thing on that is just because it's pen testing and not AppSec. Like, there is a difference. A lot of people kind of think, oh, it's all hacking. It's all the same. There's definitely a difference between those who are doing like the app specific tests primarily and those that are doing network pen testing. There's an overlap for sure but there is a difference um yeah and, the pen testing is a lot more tool usage it's well tool usage like, and like pen that. testing you just and this is where there's kind of a difference there are some pen tests i really do get to dive in more but i mean generally a pen test you're being hired by company x to look at their entire network and find the issues they're not going to be able to patch you know some random piece of software that you find an oday in it's just that's not what they're hiring you to find. They're, they want you to find issues that they can actually fix and things they can do. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, on the AppSec side, we're being hired maybe by the company that developed the application to find an issue or to find issues. Uh, so that's going to be things they can patch. And we're less concerned about the deployment style issues, the configuration and all of that, more just issues that exist in their code base because that's what they can fix. They can't control how customers deploying it. Uh, so it's they're two very different areas. There's an absolute overlap in them, uh, but they are different areas. And OSCP, just because it is such a basic coverage in terms of the app side, uh, can hurt. Generally, I'd argue, you know, it's better than nothing. And the respect level for OSCP has only been growing over the years. Uh, yeah. That said, uh, talking about this course in particular. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I really liked the exam. Um, it definitely, like, when I was doing the course, I'm like, well, I mean, I don't care too much about it. Doing the exam, though, I actually have a bit of respect for this certification, more so than OSCP or OSCE. Okay. Uh, that said, I mean, one thing we did want to talk about is the proctoring aspect. Uh, this course is one of them that gets a proctored exam. I'm not yeah. sure why I wasn't proctored. Um, I actually got a little bit worried after I submitted the exam, and I'm like, I look online, see people talking about it being proctored and all that. I'm like, well, I, I didn't, I definitely didn't start the software to be proctored during this exam, and <laughs> uh, none of my resources indicated that I needed to do that. Uh, so I was a little bit worried. I did pass the exam, even though I didn't do that. So I wasn't proctored. That might have just been because I had signed up before it was publicly accessible. I got in while well, still beta. Yeah. Uh, so that's at least my guess. Uh, though with that, I mean, there have been some people who really don't like the proctoring aspect. If you're not familiar, essentially, Offensive Security now wants everybody to essentially have their camera on facing them while they're doing the exam. And I believe also screen sharing. And I mean, yeah. I, it, there's no audio with the camera. It's not sending, or at least it's not supposed to be sending any audio. They can't hear you. Uh, but the idea is just, you know, to prevent cheating. Yeah, so I did want to bring that up a little bit just in regards to the cert, because I have heard that there has been a lot of, like, it cheating has become a lot more popular on the OS, uh, the offensive security certs. And that's why yeah, they felt de they definitely on the, the OSCP cert, it has... And I imagine this cert will kind of get there, too. And yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just people that will, like, uh, either just share answers or, you know, have somebody else legitimately just take the exam for them. Yeah, which I was hurting the reputation of the cert a little bit. Yeah, so I think it's uh, less common among OSCE and OSE. One E, since that requires the physical presence. And OSCE, I, I don't know, maybe it is now, but... Actually, um, I did find that somebody had actually uploaded the exam binary onto uh, hack forms. I don't think it's up <laughs> anymore, but somebody was asking for help with the exam binary on hack forms. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I mean, it's generally there just to kind of prevent people from having somebody else take the exam or using tools that they shouldn't. They do restrict, like you can't use like autopone on OSCP to automatically pwn everything. Um, yeah. They have a similar restriction on the advanced web attacks one here, but generally a lot of the tools just wouldn't have been useful anyhow. So it's less about that. So, I mean, it is an open book exam. Like you can Google whatever you want. What I'm wondering is what if you like, if you ask for help without directly mentioning that it's for the course, like, you know, if you go into like a discord, like a programming discord or, you know, whatever, and you, or you just have friends who, who do pen testing and stuff and you message them saying, can you help me with this? But you don't mention that it's for the cert or whatever. Like if they, I guess they can't really detect that. Well, they could though, because they could screen sharing. Uh, that's true. So I um, wonder if there is a clear defined rule about talking to people like you can Google it, but Googling it is different than directly. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, we can, uh, Take a look that I imagine I think they mentioned something about 
um, you know, you're supposed to take the exam alone, so they don't. Oh, this is just the blog post. There's an actual FAQ page about proctoring. Maybe it's on here. Yeah, I'm just curious, because it, it does seem like there's a bit of a gray area there where you can... Well, I I don't think that... I'm just looking here. Like, my guess would be that they wouldn't really support you actually asking for somebody to help you specifically on an exam challenge. I mean, yeah, that seems not. like legitimate cheating. Like, you're doing the exam for yourself to prove that you can do it. So asking for help like that, but at the same time, asking for help in the sense of like a more general question, just like somebody point me towards, you know, the man page for this, or I'm having X issue. Um, I imagine there's definitely a sense of human validation or yeah. like just being reasonable about it. Asking somebody for the exploit to do X versus... Um, yeah, there's probably a reasonable standard for questions and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, it does. Wow, I don't see questions on the FAQ. Well, <laughs> they received a lot of uh, feedback uh, when they first <laughs> announced it. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. Although I will say, I believe the proctors are in-house. Like they are employed by Offsec. It's not some random company doing it. Okay. Yeah, I guess in that kind of. So I'd hope they have some education about kind of what the course is about and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I don't see any question that really helps answer what you asked. Yeah. The other thing with them having it in-house, it kind of alleviates some of the privacy concerns. Well, that's uh, part of why they have it in-house too, or at least they mentioned that's why they did it in-house. Yeah. But, yeah, I... Do you, did you have anything else to add on the offensive security course? I think that Yeah, I mean, well, I can move on. Or not from the course, but just about the exam itself. Um, I kind of mentioned there, the exam itself, obviously I can't go into details about what the questions were, but yeah. it didn't feel like playing a CTF. It didn't have those artificially induced challenges, uh, which is kind of like you play a CTF, and I'll say that the OSCE exam felt like playing a CTF. I enjoy CTFs, I didn't mind it, but it felt like a CTF. Whereas this one felt a lot more real world. It felt a lot more like I was on an actual project, I was on an assessment, and this client was doing something really weird. And I was kind of digging into what the client was doing in their code base. Uh, the exam itself, like I'd argue, was... The most difficult part of it was the vault hunting, not on being able to... One, utilize any existing vulns, or two, uh, just on the exploitation. Like, once I found anything, it was like, you know, 20 minutes and I had the exploit working. Uh, most of the exam was finding the issues, uh, which I think is actually makes the certification somewhat valuable uh, because it requires that you're able to kind of enter into doing some manual code auditing. Uh, yeah. It shows like somebody who passes it, assuming they pass it normally without cheating, all of that has some level of competency to approach an unknown code base and audit it. So, I mean, that, I think, gives it a lot more valuable than OSCP or OSCE. 
OSC just really doesn't fit anywhere. I could go on a rant or a discussion about that, but I won't for now. Um, okay. <laughs> because OSC, is, it's just a cert that doesn't fit because it's not modern enough and it doesn't really do anything. Uh, but yeah. this one, I actually, like, if I were a hiring manager or whatever and looking at resumes, if I saw somebody had the OSWE cert, I would be willing to kind of say, okay... They can probably skip part of the filtering. I, I wouldn't say they'd okay. get a job. Like nobody's getting a job because they have certification. I believe a lot of the hiring in the industry takes place by di uh, by demonstrating your skill. Uh, yeah. That said, one of the first stages is always like some simple challenges that just anybody kind of gets access to. That's why in AppSec you have a lot of people being hired without. Uh, a ton of experience if they can demonstrate their ability. Uh, so there are these early kind of filter stages to a lot of, like before you get to get interviewed, you do a filter challenge or two. Yeah, like simple screening. Yeah, like, I mean, they might still be reasonably complicated exploits, but uh, even if you don't quite get all the way to finishing it, you'll, depending on how far you got, that'll let you pass the filter or not. Say, like, I can't do with this. I'd be somewhat willing to let them skip the filter and go into interviewing them just okay. because of what this kind of illustrates about what they can do. Uh, the exam, like I said, felt very... I mean, it was... It wasn't realistic, but... It was close the to way, realistic compared the to... The way you went about it, the way you had to go and solve it, I think was really well done. And while the course, like I said, was I was kind of meh about, the mm -hmm. exam I have a lot of respect for. Not because it's super difficult either. Like, I think it's definitely approachable by a lot of people, but just because of what it actually required to pass it. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I think I, I can't really add anything because I've never taken an offensive security course. Um, yeah. And I mean, to be clear, people can get courses or can work without having a certification. It's definitely not a necessity in the industry. Yeah, I think it is a little bit, um, like I do see on a, you know, on the hiring threads and stuff I've looked at on Reddit and stuff like that, a lot of people talk up certs a lot. I think, I don't think they're as important as some people like to think they are. No, um, they're not. They are definitely kind of, they're pushed a lot more than they need to be. I mean, the yeah. big thing is you need the skill. If you have, I've said it many times, if you have the skill, there are companies, especially on the AppSec side of things, if you're able to find vulnerabilities, there are companies willing to hire you. There are companies yeah. absolutely willing to hire you, even if you don't have experience, because most people come from really varied backgrounds. I mean, before I got into AppSec, I worked, I was in the army in a very non-tech field. I was in artillery and I was a yeah. magician. <laughs> I mean, that, that's not exactly a straightforward path into security. Security was just a hobby for many years before that. <laughs> I, I feel like you could make a joke out of that somewhere. <laughs> Magician well, to army to security. But, uh... But, I mean, it's just like... And people come from crazy backgrounds. I think I had a co-worker that came from, like, a psychology degree. I mean, like... The industry doesn't care a ton about the certs. The certs just help you a little bit if you have nothing else. Nothing. The else best thing you can do is have CVs or have actual findings under your name, because uh, that yeah. speaks volumes. If you if you've actually found some proper O days, uh, and you know done some responsible disclosure on them, and they're 
cool vulnerabilities, that'll help you get a job pretty much anywhere because that's what the job is. Yeah. So uh, but we'll, yeah. Uh, we'll moving on we'll, to somebody we'll else that's looking for a job. Uh, sandbox <laughs> escaper. Yep. Um, so uh, actually, uh, they so... removed their comment. Well, not only that, I think the, um, so there was actually a GitHub repo of the, uh, POC or whatever. And I think they actually took it down. I think Sandbox Escaper took it down. I don't think yeah. Well, I noticed their blog was modified too, like removed everything. But yeah, I, I like this. They did this with the last time too, when they posted on Reddit also at the end there also, how do I get a job in InfoSec? Oh man, I, I have, I have some opinions on Sandbox Escaper because it, it seems like very attention seeking. Um, pretty much every like sh you know she's done this before, right? Like there's yeah, been this is of... like the fifth or the sixth thing yeah. back in August and October, I think, and in December. Yeah. Those are the dates I have written, but I didn't actually go and dig into them too much. Yeah, I remember one of them had to do with um, like I think a few of them actually were like uh, arbitrary file things, like bypassing file permissions. Um, basically just like permission bypasses and they were interesting. Um, some of them I think were talked up a little bit more than like, you know, they were made to be a little bit more impactful than they actually were. Um, but in like every case, every release, it's like, um, you know, talks about can't get a, a job in InfoSec and why won't like anybody hire me. But then in the same blog post, uh, she'll put like, I, I hate America. Um, <laughs> I've actively given zero days to uh, the foreign nations against America, <laughs> like, like really stupid statements that like, no, like would probably put you on the blacklist for a lot of hiring uh, positions. So it, it it's always, I've always been a bit confused about like, well, I mean, to be fair, like they're are. based in the UK, like sandbox escaper, I believe is from the UK. Uh, yeah. So but like I, they might like, have some issue with America and I mean, America, to be fair, is pretty much the central hub for security. That's what I was going to say. Like, if you're going to, you know, have all this anti-American statements and stuff, you're, any American company probably is going to be a lot less likely to pick you up. And pretty much all security companies I can think of, like, most of them are American. Yeah, like, I mean, most most of the major security companies are American. Like it's partially just because the hub for tech is also, you know, the West coast, California, California. Yeah. Uh, that said, I mean, like they have mentioned, like they've had some talking about some suicide comments. Um, it yeah. seems like there's been some mental issues relayed depression being uh, trans. I mean, that, I mean, I'm sure it's not easy, especially if they don't have, like, a support system around them, people that actually support them in that. I don't know really any of the details, so I can't say, but it seems like there's more going on besides what we see in these releases. Um, yeah. That said, it seems like focusing more on the actual releases, though. Um, I mean, it seems like a lot of them are generally based on other vulnerabilities. Like, they've gone through and just, like, you know, somebody else found a vulnerability, it got patched they found a bypasser, like, the same vulnerability elsewhere. That's why, like, this one itself, I think, was based on uh, Forshaw. Uh, yeah, do you know much about that? I, didn't I don't. A chance to... Oh, okay. Um, I, I didn't okay. dig into the actual thing, but they mentioned that uh, the bug itself was inspired by Forshaw. 
Yeah, I wanted to look more at the actual POC, but by the time I got around to it, it was removed. And I mean, I'm sure it's somewhere out there, but yeah, I just didn't get a chance to look at it. It's kind of yeah. kind of sucks that it was taken down like that. Yeah, <laughs> like I said, it's probably out there somewhere. Uh, that said, I mean, it does sound like they've. I mean, one of their previous things, they released a uh, O-Day, and then their comment was, you know, I don't care about life anymore. Neither do I ever want to submit to Microsoft anyway. And then they dropped the uh, O-Day for whatever Windows area. Yeah. Uh, but then later they tweeted out, I screwed up, not Microsoft. They're actually a cool company. Depression sucks. Also, there's a bug <laughs> in the use of hard links. Okay, this is actually where I must be remembering the Forshaw stuff because in this tweet there, they actually mentioned was inspired by Forshaw. So my oh, apologies, okay. the curve one probably isn't that. I just in getting gray for this, misremembered. Uh, that said, like it sounds like they've tried to submit for a bounty and then something happened. Don't know what. Don't know the details there. I just find this whole thing really weird though. Like you said, kind of attention grabbing. I mean, it very well might be that these, this is somebody that's gainfully employed and is just trolling. I mean, even oh, if these are kind of, so. even yeah. if these are, you know, somewhat decent issues to be pulling out, I mean, it's it still takes time to find them, even if they are based on other issues. So they've got the time to spend trying to find them. Uh, and that means they also have the money to spend the time trying to find them. So, I mean, it's possible that's, you know, a high school kid or something, too. I mean, we don't know the details. There's a lot of ways to explain it. But that kind of makes me question if they're actually, you know, unemployed. Yeah, so I actually, I have something else I want to bring up because I just remembered it. Uh, so I'll, I'll pull up the tweet. Uh, it should still be... Uh, nope, it's not. Okay. Well, I have a, I have a, you know, screenshot because the Discord embed still uh, has the actual tweet. So I'll just take a screenshot of it and put that up. Um, there was this tweet put out. <clears throat> so I think this was the reason that she dropped the, <clears throat> the uh, POC publicly, um, was because in the past, um, yeah, she said I got to reward twenty five hundred dollars for each, but not ten thousand as per. And then the t.co link, and that's basically, um, I'll bring that up too, but that's basically Microsoft's bounty page. So, you know, they have this program description and they have like payouts. Um, so here it is here. Uh, where's the 10,000? I think it's, uh, I think it's these ones. Um, so she expected to get 10,000 uh, and she only got 2,500 or whatever it was. Um, so one thing I do want to mention here, though, is they do mention the report quality is important. So, um, you know, the tweet obviously says I provided all necessary details with a high quality POC and explanation. And, <clears throat> you know, this mentions that the report quality at uh, like low to medium would be in that, you know, $2,500 range. Um, but one discussion that kind of sparked with that was I think that the bounty was worth more before and then they were getting a lot of submissions for that bug type or whatever and then they lowered it and there was kind of this discussion going on about you know if that was fair to researchers and whatnot i was just curious about what you thought about that because i didn't see you jump into that discussion i think you were busy with something so. no i didn't um the way you've described it is it fair to researchers no that said bounties are about the company 
if they realize i would rather them drop the payment and still offer something than just not pay and decide nope that's now out of scope until we deal with it or get rid of the bounty i mean (sighs) bounties are something companies do there's no reason why they have to pay for these issues that said, I mean, there's kind of a sense of, well, we advertise, you know, we're going to pay out $30,000. And then, you know, they change the payment on it uh, as soon as somebody starts reporting it, as soon as people start looking at it. I mean, like, yeah. that is an unfair move. Absolutely. But I can't fault the company, like, especially if they've noticed that. And hopefully they're taking steps now to resolve those types of issues to realize that they can't afford to keep paying that out and still offer something rather than just dropping it. See, yeah, that's my issue. Is like, it, it definitely sucks for the researchers. From a researcher standpoint, I can definitely see you getting angry about it. But I think it's unreasonable to expect the company to always pay out the same when the supply and demand is kind of fluctuating, right? Like, if, you, if you're getting a lot of submissions for a bug type... Uh, or, you know, that bug type is less powerful because of a new mitigation or something, it's not reasonable to expect them to keep paying out the same amount they have in the past. Um, even though that sucks for the researcher, obviously, you know, they're they're getting paid less. It's just, I, I don't think it's reasonable to hold a company to, like, b- you know, to bind them because you paid this in the past, you got to pay this now. Yeah, and I'd agree with that. I mean, I think there should be some reasonable announcement of intent to change the price like if we're talking about what a company should do when they're making that change and maybe they did announce this i don't know um but like if they had say 30 days before like hey we're no longer going to be paying this much for it as of x days like 30 days in the future or whatever that i think would be more respectful of the researchers than just suddenly dropping it I think as a company, they obviously they can do what they want. It's their sole discretion to decide how much to pay for something. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think the right way to go about that would be to announce it and let researchers know that it'll be dropping. Yeah, and that's exactly what I proposed in the you know the discussion that was happening too was pretty much the exact same timeline around thirty days. You know, in thirty days we're going to be dropping this for you know, and then. Preferably, you know, they'd give some sort of a surface level reason. Obviously, they don't have to go deep into it because then, you know, you don't want them like you don't you shouldn't expect them to go too deep into technical detail of why they're not why they're lowering it. But I think, you know, they should put out a reasonable amount of information. Yeah, I mean, that's just how they can respect the researchers that are, are spending their time and are looking at the amount that they can get paid for to decide where they're spending their time. Yeah. So to be hit by that by surprise, especially if you're somebody who's trying to make a living off of these. But yeah. that said, that comes down to, you know, the merits of actually trying to do a li- make a living off of bug bounties. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's by nature very volatile. So it's Yeah, I mean it, I I think it's loosely related to the Windows drop. I think that's part of the reason why uh she's doing it is because of um that tweet so i just wanted to bring that up um but yeah i i I don't want to go too deep into that discussion because i feel like you could talk for hours about um bounties and logistics it's the last episode we can go for a few hours right (laughs) (laughs) no i i think we're both kind of in agreement though uh is it the most fair thing to just drop in no but 
the company has no need to actually be fair. And there are things they could do to be fair to researchers. Like, I think we're generally in agreement, so there isn't really that much discussion to be had. Yeah. Uh, one comment I did want to point out, this perfect debt person on Reddit said, uh, well, that and the... Oh, okay. Uh, that and the FBI has emailed us all not to hire you. I don't know who us is in that statement, but... Uh, like, I, know, I mean, clearly I, that's a troll or a joke or whatever. I mean, maybe not. It could be. I mean, you know. Well, I mean, it would be as I think somebody else kind of comments there uh, about that being an unconstitutional blacklisting. Like, yeah. I don't believe if it got out that the FBI was actually make or encouraging private companies not to hire an individual. I can't imagine that would reflect well on them for any reason. Yeah. And then the other funny thing was the uh, the readme.rtf. Uh, <laughs> I've never really, you know, RTF isn't really a popular format for write-ups, but <laughs> apparently uh, apparently the repo had an RTF for the write-up instead of markdown. So um, not, re not really sure why, but, you know, I thought that, would, uh, that was a funny thing to bring well, up. The format war is still going on. We know what side they're on. Yeah. So, um... Yeah, I think we'll we'll go into the. Uh, yeah, we could talk about one of the uh, mass massive failures of the week. Yeah, so uh, Hunter's American Financial Court. Yeah, I'll let you talk about it. Yeah, so apparently, uh, real estate uh, insurance, First American Financial, um, they had a a page that basically leaked a bunch of uh, PII. You know, bank account numbers, tax records, social security numbers, driver's license images. There was more stuff than that. Um, and uh, again, it was a it was a bug because you could access that without authentication. It was kind of it, it reminds me of that uh, router bug we were talking about last week. Um, and I just want to bring up like, what is it with all the uh, no authentication information disclosures we've been talking about lately i feel like we've been talking about it like the last four episodes or well something. i mean it's actually a reasonably common issue actually I've, did we talk about the i think it was 19 years old made a million dollars doing bug bounties did we talk about that on stream w which one was this, uh, the the uh, teenager who made a million dollars on hacker one oh yeah we did talk about that uh he talked about kind of some of the things that he would look for and he actually would look for exactly this type of issue uh, were it either unauthenticated or not. But I mean, one of the issues here is all you need to know is the link to a, a document link. And they give an example of the document number as being, oh, uh, it looks, it's always hard to count zeros. Uh, <laughs> six zero or seven zeros and then seven five as being the first record. I'm going to presume yeah. that the zeros and then seven six was another document and so on and so forth, which is what they mentioned. Uh, yeah, it, just using that type of ID for access to something is a whole nother or is a big issue. Uh, yeah. Just being able to increment the ID and not doing any auth checking for the individual document. Just, oh, well, it's a valid document. They must be okay to read it. Probably a good way to fix that would just be taking IDs and hashing them like MD5 or something. Well, use a, uh, like the KUID or just use a UID. Yeah. Um, but I, I should say that this is probably the most serious one that uh, so far. 
like you know uh, with bank Costco, account numbers yeah, like that yeah, definitely like, a lot of very serious information as you're saying bank account numbers mortgage and tax records social security numbers wire transaction receipts driver's license images like everything any document that was theft. emailed yeah anything you need for identity theft you could pull from this uh this uh, yeah no this this is where and I mean, the other thing is uh, Krebs actually mentioned that he was contacted by a real estate developer in Washington who said he had little luck getting a response from the company about what he found. Oh, really? I didn't notice that. Let me see if uh, we can find that. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, that's actually concerning to me. Like, this is where I really feel like every company should have a security contact point. With, mm-hmm. you know, at least the response within, say, five days, one business, or even two business weeks. I mean, sure, things should be quicker, but, like, setting that off is, like, a universal rule. I mean, I think that could at least be somewhat fair, but I could imagine that being abused, you know, spam their email, and then they're not responding fast enough. Because they've got, yeah. like, five million things to reply to. But I don't know, I mean... One, for like a company in terms of just their security posture, they should definitely have a security contact. But I mean, especially with these banks and stuff, I feel like it should be legally required. Oh, yeah. I was about to say, when you're dealing with this type of information that's like government issued identification and stuff like that, I feel like this company should be fined for uh, this like this is definitely gross negligence they very well may still get fined i don't know i'm not sure what the laws are with that but i believe you know there's a good chance they will be but i'm just saying like they also should have had a better way for this to be disclosed to them <clears throat> oh yeah like i think it should like especially when you're dealing with this kind of data there should be a legally enforced uh security posture for um like well, I, I think there is. Like, I think there are some standards that are legally required for it. Okay. Um, I'm specifically only referring to uh, the contact, like, once it's been discovered. Yeah, but I think even even for beforehand, you know what I mean? Like, this, this is a pretty blatant issue that I think it's reasonable to expect the company to be able to... Uh, you know discover and patch before it's abused well for sure i mean this is such a trivial issue if it is as described where it's like yeah they use an incrementing number um as the i as the secret id yeah i was just curious if uh nothing since it's just disclosed we're not going to know anything about a fine just yet yeah but i believe with information like this um, I believe there are already kind of some legal requirements around it. Yeah. Like I would, I would anticipate there'd be a fine. I don't actually know the U.S. laws for this. Yeah, I would anticipate that they'd be violating something here. Th- this kind of reminds me of um, the uh, Equifax uh, data breach that happened uh, a year or two ago. Yeah. Um, what I wonder is if this breach is actually even more serious. I mean, the, the Equifax stuff blew up, right? It was everywhere. They were getting hammered from everybody. Um, honestly, this article, I didn't, I didn't even know about until you shared it to me. Like, I don't feel like this is being talked about really much at all. Um, maybe that's just, you know, me, you know, my ignorance. I, I haven't seen it in other areas that I look or 
you know, it might just be anecdotal, but um, I'm surprised I haven't seen this talked about more. I think part of it is, you know, the Equifax stuff had, was a lot larger, I believe. Is there yeah, a lot more the... central to people? Like, yeah. Equifax is one of, like, three companies that deals with, like, your, you know, the credit ratings and stuff, I believe, in the U.S. I think it's three. It might only be two companies. But, like, there's a lot more, or a much greater percentage of people that were compromised by that than by this. Yeah, still, it's pretty, it's close, though, I'd say. Like, I'd, I'd say it's close in impact. Oh, no, how um, big was the Equifax breach? Because this is... Well. Uh, so, I'll have to look it up using Google. Uh, 143 million people, I don't know if it's... Personal information of 143 yeah. million that and then i also have another source here saying uh 209,000 consumer credit card credentials were taken so that sounds a significant okay. chunk more s serious than this one well this okay, one has so that was a bit more serious than i remember yeah like i think the equifax was a lot larger and more serious like i mean the information stolen here is absolutely still serious but i would I would definitely consider the Equifax to be like an order of magnitude more serious. Okay. But yeah, regardless, like this is definitely like, <laughs> I hope this company gets fined, but yeah, I can't imagine they uh, won't get out without a fine. But again, I don't know the U S law, so I can't, can't you actually even... comment uh, cert with certainty on that. I mean, I, I don't know how this would uh, hold up in a court or whatever, but I could even see uh, this potentially like I, you might be able to sue the company if your information was leaked like this. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, I did, I just thought of that. Um, but yeah, like this is this is one major fail, and uh, we'll we'll t we'll talk about another one now, which is Google. Yeah, I mean, so we've talked about this is Google admits to storing G Suite user particular enterprise customers' uh, passwords in plain text for fourteen years. Now, when Facebook had a similar issue, and I think this report actually kind of comments on Facebook having stored passwords too, I was a little bit forgiving. With Facebook, I saw it as, you know, likely logging or something like that. It seemed to be what we were being told, that Facebook had accidentally been logging information. With this one, though, it seems that Google has basically... Uh, in a in 2005, they introduced a new feature allowing domain admins to set and recover passwords for their company users, mainly used, I guess, to add new employees into the system. And it was in doing that that these plain text passwords were stored. Uh, this feature doesn't exist anymore, but it sounds like it was more than just like a simple oh they accidentally logged the password. Uh, this was, seems like they stored the passwords or did something. They don't give us enough information to know, but did something really stupid here uh, that resulted yeah. in like a handful of enterprise customers having their passwords stored for the last 14 years uh, and a feature that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So um, I will say that this isn't like Google wide, you know, it's not like if you just have a Gmail account, it is G suite specific. So you, you know, it's for G businesses that have G suite yeah, set up. It's definitely limited. Yeah. Like the number of people being hit by this is limited. sounds like they were able to just contact everybody. Um, I don't know if they gave a number for it. I didn't take note of one. 
but I mean, yeah, definitely limited, which is a nice thing, but still like what I imagine being done here is like, oh, well, if they want to set the password, let's just store what their password is until they reset it or something. And like yeah. doing something like that, like, I don't know what they did. We don't know, but the fact so that actually, this was part I, I of a recovery process. Yeah. So I can help shed a little bit of light on that because I found uh, somebody actually posted a copy of the direct email on Y Combinator. Uh, so we were writing to inform you an internal system that logged account signup information for diagnostic purposes. Um, oh, okay. So this was a logging app. thing. Didn't sound yeah. like it was. Okay. So that yeah, could make it fall under the, depth, so. that could kind of push it under the Facebook thing again. Like I totally get when people overzealous logging because it's super easy to make that mistake when you're not thinking about all the possible information that's included in the logs. There should be other systems in place. There's a ton of things that can be done to prevent sensitive information going into logs, but it is just such an easy mistake. And then when you just toss in the scale of Google, like I, I totally understand when people make that mistake. It shouldn't be made, but I get it. Um, it's more understandable, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things where I feel like you've got to really be thinking about it at the time when it happens. Uh, sometimes the catch act, which is different than just really bad architecture. Yeah. And another thing I do want to point out from this email is they say the log information was retained for 14 days and then was Oh, deleted. so this might be about... So... There's, there were two issues here. If you go back to the original report... Okay. Uh... A second list was also discovered um, right over here. That might be what the Y oh, okay. is referring to then. Okay. So those, okay, yeah, that, is... that kind of did sound like logging because it was only stored for a short period. So yeah, again, I'll just say, I don't know what happened with that original finding, like kind of the t uh, title log issue. Uh, it sounds like it was a pretty big failure of some type of architectural issue and not logging. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like the Y Combinator Hacker News link, though, is referring to the second one. Yeah, I didn't... Yeah, it's it's a bit weird that there is two separate issues. Um, like, that all Although, perhaps that's why they, they put them together, because either one, they knew people might report on it and get confused over, well, one was for 14 days, the other for yeah. 14 years. I mean, 14 is <laughs> shared, right? 14. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing I do want to comment on this this font that this site uses sucks. This looks awful on Firefox. I think on Chrome it renders fine. It must be like a browser incompatibility. But wow, this font sucks. It sucks for you too, right? It's not just me, right? Oh uh, well, on what we're using to view it, yeah, I don't think I saw any <laughs> issue when I was reading it on. Yeah, I, I did see any issue when I'm reading it on my own machine. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so maybe it's just a thing with uh, Rabbit, but... Or um, Linux. I assume this is yeah. running under Linux. Yeah, it is. So, so it could be a font from that. Yeah, so I I will say, what do you think of the response to it? Like, you know, they sent out the email, they said they were going to be forcing password resets, um, but I haven't seen, like, a full, you know, uh, response from Google about it. Maybe maybe there is one. I don't, I don't know if you've seen one. I was just curious. I haven't about what seen one. Okay. Uh, let me let me just. I mean, if they've contacted quick. the people involved, I mean that's kind of what you need to do. 
Yeah, I just didn't know if they had like a page dedicated to it, but uh, yeah, they just said they notified the users that were affected by it. So, I mean, yeah, I guess that's good enough. I just, I kind of wish they you always kind of want more. Detail. I mean, well, I mean, but I mean, that's just kind of us. We want to know the technical details of what actually happened, partially well, I mean, so we can make fun of people when they do really stupid things, and also just kind of for personal education. Like, what mistakes are the the reasonable quality engineers at Google? I don't think they're really hiring too many terrible engineers. What type of mistakes are they making? You know, because odds yeah. are other companies are making these same mistakes. They're just less visible. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not even just the technical details, though. Like, um, well, technical details are what I want. Oh, yeah, I I would like those too. But I mean, even just like a list that clearly lays out everything, instead of having to go to blog posts that could be missing information and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Well, um, it looks like their email was better. It just wasn't. But public. even in their, but even in their email, they stated they they were talking about the fourteen day thing, and I don't see. Well, maybe that was because this list. person was only impacted by that, though. Yeah, that's possible in, too. In fact, I'm actually. I feel like it's pretty unlikely, but I don't think I saw an email come in. From from our G Suite. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see one either. I, I think it was... Yeah, I don't think it, it affected us, but... Because I think the feature was removed um, before... Yeah, we well, I mean, it's unclear where this 14-day one came from and where the other one came from. Yeah, and that's where I'd like, you know, a bit more information. Like more information, like, yeah. it's And maybe Google will still come out with something after they've looked at it. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Usually they're pretty quick on that, so I'm guessing we're not going to see anything. Yeah, probably not. Um, and yeah, here's where they mentioned the Facebook thing. They were talking about the IRPC of, of Ireland is going to look into the if it breached GDPR. So that could actually be something that maybe is taken against Google too. If uh, any you know European Union countries try to do a GDPR uh, hit against google for this information yeah i guess you know it's worth mentioning gdpr i think just turned a year old yeah uh last week yeah so you could definitely see some like the eu going after google for it uh potentially yep yeah, no you definitely sure. could yeah so uh, that's the two major fails of the week uh we'll, we'll go into some some white papers so our first white paper we have up is the safety versus security attacking avionic systems with humans in the loop. So it's essentially about attacking um, airplanes and airplane equipment. Yeah, well, to be fair, this paper itself wasn't so much about the attacks as it was about the pilot response to being attacked. It does cover uh, yeah. three, three particular attacks um, against the traffic collision avoidance system, uh, ground proximity warning system, and glide scope spoofing. Yeah, the instrument landing system. Um, yeah, so this paper is actually kind of neat. Like, it doesn't go uh, into too much of the technical details of the attacks, but it goes more into, like, uh, I think they had pilots in, like, flight sims. Yeah, they use they a flight throwing... simulator. Pilots would fly, and they would perform these attacks against them. Obviously, it would be a bit questionable to do this with them actually flying, so I don't see any other oh, yeah. way for no, them to have done happen. this. <laughs> but I mean, they do talk about the attacks, like the ground proximity warning. They talk about the cost of actually performing some of them, and I mean, the costs there to get like the to do the false radar pulses. I think they mention 
I think it was in that area, was like 10,000 bucks. So, like, it's not, it's not crazy expensive. And that's the thing. So, a lot of these radio attacks in general are really kind of becoming more accessible. But they're, just to be clear, they are highly illegal to do a lot of this. Uh, even oh, yeah. something like GPS, uh, uh, like denial of service against GPS devices or spoofing uh, is generally illegal to do in any area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like this is also, so like there's that barrier of it. And that means like there isn't a lot of research being done into these attacks. And also that they seem like kind of soft bodies. And like there are some, the attacks they talk about are reasonably straightforward to perform. You know, it's transmitting a false radar pulse from like this area as part of their landing and things like that. Yeah. So you were mentioning about the cost of pulling off some of these attacks. So, it it varied quite a bit. It seemed the um, ground proximity warning system, um, they could attack with like a low $1,000 budget. So they basically, they attacked the radio altimeter by transmitting frequencies between, I think it was 4,200 megahertz and 4,400. And then they, by doing that, they could trigger false, um, you know, those things you hear from the movies when planes are crashing, the terrain, terrain, pull up. They could yeah. trigger those um, remotely. And I think that they said like the antenna and everything would be about a thousand dollars, but then they talked about the traffic collision avoidance system and they said that re- would require a high powered setup. You'd need like an amplifier, a transceiver, high power, an and that one requires basically a plane because yeah, it happens so- in the air. I mean, in theory, maybe like implant this in like baggage or something like it just needs to be on the plane. Perhaps it doesn't need to necessarily be attached. Like, there were definitely some limits to that. But, I mean, the paper itself wasn't necessarily about the practicality of doing the attacks. I mean, they talk about them, and that's a very interesting aspect. I think it's only going to become more accessible over the years. Well, I did want to mention, with the uh, traffic collision avoidance system, they actually did say that it can be pulled off from high ground or near an airport. Like, it's it's actually not as proximity-dependent as GP... uh, the. Uh, or sorry, that was, yeah, traffic collision avoidance system. The ground proximity warning system, I think you need to be a bit closer. Um, the instrument landing system, though, I didn't look at too much, so it could be that one you were thinking of. Um, but yeah, the the traffic collision avoidance system seemed like it could be attacked from, like you didn't even have to be in the airport, you could just be near it. So <clears throat> that one is probably the m- most worrying one. Uh, at least I don't to me. know. See, here's my thing. If you want to talk about worrying, <clears throat> though, this paper actually gives me. I'm not too worried about any of them based on the pilot response. Uh, okay. So jumping into that, like with the GPWS, I don't know if they have the stats for the um, the traffic collision avoidance one, or at least I didn't write them down. I only have the stats for the other two. But um, okay. that said, with the with the ground proximity warning system, thirty three percent of the pilots. Uh, could see they were okay to land and landed. Uh, 66.7% followed the warning, turned around, and half of those people just turned it off and made their yeah. second landing. 40% landed just despite the warning, and one person went around for a third time before landing. So, I mean, yeah. all of them just took some basic maneuvers and. And I mean, yeah, it sounds like they were like this is they talk about the damages being like uh, time wasted doing that turnaround. 
Yeah. But... So it seemed like oh, almost all the attacks were based on just trying to cause delays and confusion. None of them were like trying to, you know, bring the aircraft down or anything like that. Uh, it was mostly just to cause confusion in the cockpit, it seemed. Yeah, and I mean, for the most part, like, especially with the ground proximity one, it seemed like, yeah, okay, it caused them to make a second approach once, for the most part, which pretty much any flight's going to be able to do without a huge issue. Yeah. Like, it cuts on the time a little bit, but there's such padding built into a lot of the times that that's not really a big issue. It didn't cause anybody to need to go around to another airport. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I don't know. I mean, seeing the pilot response, they're trained to respond to this. They don't just blindly trust the sensors. It mm-hmm. just kind of gives me some confidence in this not really being a huge issue, even though the systems are somewhat soft. That is, though, like, all these attacks on this, like, these systems are all sensors. Um, but when, what about when you start talking about attacks on other systems that the pilot can't? exert manual control over you know what i mean what systems um, can't they exert manual control over i mean a big part of the like what if they okay let's say they mess with the altimeter right like i don't know if they could probably not a system you can easily access but you know for you know just for argument's sake let's say the altimeter you know if you're flying a plane you might know roughly how high you are but you're not going to have an exact number about you know how no, you but you also don't even need an ex- actually. I, I don't believe pilots ever actually have the exact number. I think a lot of time they work with. Um, now this is coming purely, I like from a Reddit thread type deal. Somebody had mentioned how, like, av- after they kind of get into cruising altitude, they're never worried about their exact uh, distance from the ground. Like that, they do- they deal with some other number that's much more rounded. I mean, nobody cares if the hill, if there's a hill that you're flying over, you're at 30,000 feet, you know, roughly speaking, and there's a hill that goes like 100 feet up, it doesn't matter. You don't go 100 feet up because there's a hill on the ground that's going up 100 feet. Like that level of detail just doesn't matter. And I mean, the pilots are trained to be in control of the flight. They use the sensors to give them information about what they're doing. Uh, but, you know, they also use their eyes to drive it, basically. They're not just relying on the sensors. Yeah. That is others... where the instrumented landing, though, the glide scope swooping comes in. That, yeah. in combination with bad weather, they'd mentioned like 86%, or, sorry, some people just ignored the glide spoofing because they could see it is okay to land. Here's the... You know, here's the runway. I can land on it. The glide spoof or the glide scope spoofing uh, would basically make them think that the approach was different from where the actual runway was. In bad mm-hmm. weather, where they can't see the runway, they would have a very limited time to actually decide to pull up and recognize that the approach information was wrong. Yeah, like a blizzard or anything like that. Um, yeah. So they did mention, uh, or another Although system Blizzard, I, I should too. say, like, they also won't land in a lot of those conditions. Like, I've been on a flight that went in to land, weather was too bad, so they flew, like, three hours back. 
That sounds like fun when you're the passenger. It um, wasn't too bad because I was in like business class, but it would okay. have sucked to have been economy class on that one. Because yeah, we <laughs> yeah. landed back. Um, uh, like we literally went halfway back because I was flying Vancouver to Saskatoon. And we okay. flew halfway back and went to Calgary. Landed there, sat on the uh, runway for a couple hours, took off and went back to Saskatoon. <laughs> it, oh, it, it definitely would have sucked being in economy for that. But um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. This paper, honestly, like seeing the pilot's response gives me a bit of confidence. Yeah, there are issues, but I feel like the pilots generally responded well to being under attack. Okay, well, here's I'll, I'll shake your confidence a little bit because I did find an interesting um, quote in here, which was recent research from the U.S. Department of Homeland indicated that a remote compromise of Boeing 757 aircraft was dismissed by Boeing. So just... that comes down to another <laughs> thing, though. Like, I assume you've heard about all the... I uh, uh, heard about what, what sorry? Like, all the... Is it 757 MAX? Is that the plane that's been crashing? There's one uh, of the so, Boeing planes that have been crashing a few times. Like yeah, there was some sensor that uh, I don't. I can't remember the exact max, details. I guess. Yeah, I can't remember the exact details. There's something like they were talking. I mean, about, I have like, some questions sensors. about Boeing. Not, and I mean that is more about the plane than about the pilots. Yeah. Uh, so, like, there are still concerns when it comes to flying. Generally, I'm not that concerned because, frankly. If I'm flying somewhere, it's because flying's the best option. And at that point, I can't do anything about it. I, yeah. I, like, I'm not going to look... Actually, maybe I would if, you know, Boeing keeps having issues. But generally, I'm not looking at the type of plane and deciding not to fly because it's on a plane I don't trust. Maybe it'll reach that point, but at this point, it's like it's out of my control. So I don't really worry about it. That said, I know plenty of people yeah. that would worry about it, so... Yeah, and I mean... I I can't really think of any like there there hasn't been any planes that have been brought down by cyber attacks have there I don't think there's been any uh, cases none come to mind happened. although at the same time would we know it was necessarily a cyber attack that led to the problem or would it I think look we like would. something else like a sensor failure uh, that's true I mean that's a fair I, point I think it's just hard to say. That we would know until we actually start seeing them. Um, yeah. Which is kind of a catch-22. Do you, do you think we will start seeing those in the future, though? Like, that being more and more of a concern? I don't know. Because, I mean, so, there is a high barrier to entry to research these, right? Like, a lot of these parts, like, people can't just buy airplanes to do No, but you can't just buy them. parts off eBay. For airplanes? <laughs> Yeah, Maybe you can actually buy some of the sensors and stuff. Just straight up go buy it off eBay. It's, <laughs> uh, like you, so you're not necessarily getting the latest thing. But that said, I mean, there are only a few people where this is going to be most people, even malicious, you know, hackers, aren't out looking for blood. They're not looking to kill. Um, yeah. Generally speaking, like you're looking at terrorist attacks using this. Might we see it? Yes. Um, I don't think we're going to see this coming out of nation states too too soon. Maybe we will actually, because there are some questionable nation states. I mean, maybe North Korea, maybe something like that. We can see it out of a nation Iran, state. Yeah. But in general, like most nation states aren't going to be attacking like a civilian plane like that. Um, 
you know, there's, you know, the rules of warfare, pretty much. Uh, so that means there's kind of a limited, there's a very limited set of people who would want to do, pull off this type of attack. They do exist. Uh, and like I said, there is kind of the barrier to entry on it. Yeah. The radio gear, though, is getting cheaper and cheaper. And better and better. <laughs> so, so I mean, like that—that yeah. that can happen. I—it's just most, like I said, most researchers aren't out for blood. So, I, well, I mean, the one thing that kind of makes me think about it is, you know, we hear a lot about. Um, oh, that's my phone. Let me just stop that. Um, yeah, I mean, we hear a lot about people de- doing stupid stuff like pointing lasers into airplanes that are flying. So this just seems like you know, one of those kinds of attacks. Obviously, it's not as easy to pull off than just shining a laser. No, it definitely requires intent. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe it's not a good comparison. That just kind of made, that's what made me think of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. I I do think the laser comparison definitely falls apart. Also, just the round, you know, most people shine, they don't realize the impact that has on the pilots. Somebody who's doing this with, like, the radios, Absolutely they know work. what they're doing. There's that intent there. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think I think that's everything on this paper. Uh, it's very surface level, not technical. So yeah, like know. I said, it's not looking at like the technical exploits. It's looking at the pilot's response. So if you're a listener who uh, you know is terrified of airplanes, maybe uh, give this paper a read. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe like probably Z, won't improve their confidence. Well, hey, it, it improved yours a little bit. So, yeah, you know. but I'm already kind of biased towards just giving them benefit of the doubt. So, oh, okay, fair enough. So, uh, we'll we'll move on to the malware guard extension. So, this paper talks about using uh, Intel SGX, so secure enclaves, to conceal cache attacks. Um, so you know, Intel SGX, it's it's basically used to try to create secure enclaves for important data passwords uh, like passwords for password managers um encryption keys and stuff like that so it's from what i understand it's basically to try to prevent side channel attacks against um trying to leak that information Um, so what i liked about this paper though is it covered kind of a realistic scenario for malware to actually hide inside of sgx and attack the um host system which is something that was said you know well you don't have, uh, uh, what is it? You don't, you can't make syscalls. You can't do IO. There's no timers for cache yeah. attacks. You can't do that inside the enclave. So there isn't a risk of malware hiding inside of the enclave, uh, which they showed clearly can be done. They can. Or the paper does demonstrate that malware could do a prime plus probe attack, uh, which we talked about. Uh, it was another. I don't remember what episode it was, but we talked about the different attacks or cache attacks yeah, on another. I, I feel like we, we talk about side channel attacks like every Well, podcast. side channels are definitely one of the big areas of research right now. And since we're looking at the research coming out, we're going to see yeah. side channel attacks. We're going to see uh, the AI, the machine learning stuff, because those are big areas of research. Yeah. And I think that's okay. I mean... If people want to hear us talk about just whatever the security news is that everybody talks about, 
Um, well, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't want to do that podcast. I yeah, mean, no, I wouldn't either. I want to point um, out things that are interesting, even if I don't totally understand them at times. It's still. Yeah. I mean, so we didn't really touch on it. So the reason that like malware was always of interest to try to get into a secure enclave was you could basically prevent it from being analyzed, you know, can't debug it, can't really reverse it because it's secured in that enclave. Um, but like Z said, they, you know, they no syscalls, can't do any IO operations. Um, but one thing I found interesting about their attack was they talked about, uh, you know, doing a timing attack and kind of similar to browsers. Um, from what I understood, they basically, they tried to make it so that you can't get accurate timings inside of the SGX either so that you can't pull off timing attacks. Um, but they, yeah, so they don't have access to the native timestamp counter is what they call it. So let me just go yeah. to that in the uh, paper. Yeah, that's what they call it. But, you know, their solution here, I mean, it's it's not their solution. Other things have done this, but. Yeah, so so the, the instructions for that are basically RDTSC and RDTSCP instructions, and those are blocked from SGX. Um, but they actually found a way, like, a workaround around that that's actually more accurate than the native timestamp counter which is like i'm not i'm not even sure how it's more accurate i didn't see well so uh, what it is uh the solution that they have is essentially a counting thread you know starts at zero and just counts up uh so then they determined how long like so your increment takes one cycle and uh the cache read to get the previous value takes you know, four cycles there's a 0.25 cycle uh like throughput rate and like they basically use like the timing of that to know how many cycles would go between each increment and they use that to determine timings but couldn't scheduling really throw that off like inside just, of like, she acts like um oh maybe not yeah uh but yeah so they basically set up the counting thread and no uh, in terms of counting, they might just know how long the quantums are. So they can determine things that way. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they're able, at the very least, to figure out what they need to, which is how long uh, the probe part of the prime probe takes. Yeah. So they do state that, in the end, they were able to recover 96% of an RSA, RSA key uh, within five minutes. Um I'm just seeing here. I don't know why they didn't put the key size in here, though, because I feel like that would be kind of important. Did they maybe um, they, talk about it earlier when they go over the RSA algorithm? Uh, they they might. I'm just going to try to... Oh, the right. Yeah, RSA key size for uh, evaluation. Yeah. Okay, so that is that is a fairly substantial key size. <laughs> so Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty... It's a pretty technical paper, just to, like, you know, you have to understand how uh, they do provide a bit of background on how SGX works. Um, but honestly, you know, I don't really do uh, anything at that level of secure enclaves and stuff. Um, they pose a few solutions at the bottom of the paper to try to solve it. Uh, so one thing they did was they said they would uh, eliminate timers, I think. Oh, maybe not. Uh, let me go to the solutions section just because I think, okay, it can't find it. What is going on here with control F? I'll just go to the bottom of the paper. Um, but you know, they, they posed a few, uh, ways to try to combat that from both software and a hardware level. 
Um, and here it is here. So one of the things they suggested was exponent blinding. I didn't know if maybe you could offer a bit more on that, because I know you've done a bit more with RSA than I have. Um, uh, did you no, I, I can't. check out the section? Okay. No, I that's, didn't, that's honestly. Okay. Um, so, yeah, they, they proposed a, propose a few solutions around it. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of nomenclature in there uh, that you need to look into to be able to properly understand it, like enclave coloring and stuff like that. So if you're interested in the SGX stuff, um, you'll probably need to look at a lot more than nomenclature. It's it's maybe worth uh, mentioning here that the RSA implementation that they've got the key from had to be co-located with um, the same uh, enclave. Like it had to be basically on the same CPU. Yeah, it had, it had to, to be, be in another enclave. secure enclave, uh, yeah. kind of within the same area there. So that definitely limits. Like it was, they talk about attacking the host. This is more attacking a function that the host would use, which yeah, is a so little a bit different. To bring up, yeah. I mean, it's still valid because obviously they're trusting the RS, like they're trusting the enclave to be able to securely do this and. You know, then you're still getting the information out, but it is a little bit different than what they kind of talk about as attacking the host. It's kind of attacking yeah. the host by proxy, by attacking another enclave. Yeah. So we'll we'll talk about uh we'll move on to the next white paper, which is biometric backdoors. So this talks about um basically trying to pull off uh uh what are they called? Template poisoning. Yeah, template poisoning attacks against um like uh fingerprints. Well, so I think a lot, I mean, fingerprints would be one face, face ID would be another thing. And I mean, the gist of the attack here that's being presented is every time when you successfully log in on, so this actually was an actual issue with iOS devices a little while back. Um, what would yeah. happen is you could log in, you know, use touch ID, use the face, face ID, um, and every time you would successfully log in, it would still scan your face. And if it was close to what the template was that it was trying to match with, like within 80% or something, it would add the new face to the template. So it still had to be very close to the original. Uh, mm-hmm. But in using this mechanism, um, over time, you can get templates added that are closer and closer to an attacker's face or an attacker's fingerprint or you know and whatever the biometric detail is you just kind of get it to add templates that are closer and closer to the attacker yeah Uh, i mean that that's the gist of the attack i mean you've got the whole paper there but gist of it was in building a few updates that would uh lead to an attacker being able to use the device also yeah so they do talk a little bit about um how the system updates work. So they say there's basically two major uh, methods that it uses, either supervised or unsupervised updates. So supervised means that, you know, you have to enter a pin or whatever. Uh, one thing I'm kind of reminded of is like when you reboot your phone, typically it'll make you enter your pin before it'll accept any biometric uh, authentication. Um, so like anytime it wants to do an update like that, it'll ask for like a hard pin or password. Um, but that's, you know, from a usability perspective, they even mentioned here, it's not incredibly convenient. So, you know, the other strategy is the unsupervised, which is, I think, the one you were talking about, where it 
it tries to strengthen it from the background, you know what I mean, without prompting for a password or anything like that. And that's the one they uh, they classify as more dangerous for doing stuff like that. Um, Which is more user-friendly. Yeah, of course, user-friendly, less security, you know, that's like the main trade-off, right? Um, and they mentioned the scenario you need to be able to attack it, though. So an attacker has to have control over the samples being injected. Uh, they they must clear the update threshold. That's the biggest one, right? So they either need to know the pin, or they, you know, they need some sort of in to be able to pull off the attack, right? Yeah, I mean, so I get needing the victim samples. It sounds hard, but when we're talking about like face idea or face ID, what you need is a picture of the person. Yeah, that's not that hard. Fingerprints are a similar thing. Like you, I doubt you go around wiping all your fingerprints off. You, you could steal <laughs> you fingerprints. Not paranoid. I absolutely do that. No, I, I mean, I'm just saying. Like it, it sounds really hard. You need to get that, but it means this is really targeted. Um, it's not just going to be random people getting attacked. There's going to be some targeting here. But yeah, even though it sounds hard, I don't necessarily think it's going to be that difficult. Maybe if we're talking about like the iris scan or something, yeah, uh, that would be a little bit more difficult because you need like a good picture of someone's eye. Although they've even talked actually on the fingerprint topic quite a while back, they've talked about extracting fingerprints from pictures because cameras are getting that good now. That's crazy. I don't remember hearing about that. Yeah, this was a while ago. I don't know how real world it was. I just remember seeing some headlines about it. Uh, but okay. yeah, I mean, getting the samples, I don't necessarily think will be too hard. Getting the ability to inject them would definitely be a challenge. Um, and that's where I, I have some questions about the real world applicability. Just because, like I said, to do this, you need to be able to get that update threshold. So we're able to generate samples. This thing talks about generating samples that go between the attacker and um, the original, which, okay, fine. You can create those samples, but you also need a way to get them in there, which means you need access to the device. You already need to be able to unlock the device. Uh, so you're mostly using this as like some type of back door. You know, you've got access now, but you maybe won't later. Um, yeah. And I feel like so, most people that are going to be targeted by something like this aren't just letting random people use their device. So at least the case I kind of thought of that this could be used as like a spouse. Which is a very good example. I wanted to bring that up because before the podcast, uh, Z and I were talking a little bit and I was thinking like, this doesn't really seem, I can't really see many practical applications of this at all, but the spouse thing is actually um a, a good point because i have heard of stories in the past about you know spouses installing spyware and stuff on their spouses devices so spyware um, or you just know that you're going to divorce them and you want to know what they're doing afterwards or something <laughs> yeah you know, a messy divorce is that is the case i was thinking of but yes spyware is another case there too where like maybe as a spouse you have access now but you won't in the future yeah um I mean, there's a lot of people that are going to be sensitive to having other people on their phone are already going to be reasonably protected from this. Just because you do need to already be able to unlock the phone, so you need access to the phone. Yeah. 
So I did want to talk about Assuming a few. We're talking about a phone. I keep saying that. Technically, we could be talking about any number of devices. I, I think a phone is just easiest to. Phones. Uh, phones easiest to kind of talk about. Yeah. Um. So I did want to talk about a few interesting quotes. One of them was, um, in the conclusion, they stated that it basically had a like a, a an injected poison sample could lead to a success rate of over forty percent. 40% uh, when you're talking about like exploits and stuff like that, I, I do consider this kind of an exploit. It's just not, you know, super low level. Um, it, it does seem a bit low, but it actually isn't too bad when you yeah, consider Yeah, but I mean, 40%, about, that's, you know, three attempts. Well, yeah, I was going to say, if we're talking about phones, most phones will give you four to five attempts before, before they'll attempt any lockouts. So 40% is absolutely good enough. Uh, in pretty much all cases, if you were able to pull it off. Um, and that brings me to the next quote, is the weak assumptions of our attacker scenario and the increasing adoption of unsupervised template updates uh, highlights the severity of the attack. And the results suggest that increased attention needs to be given to the update procedure. I don't entirely agree with that. I don't think it's... Like, they, they say it highlights the severity of the attack. I actually think it... <sighs> I see more supervised... Like, I think there's more supervised template updates than there is unsupervised. And even still, to get those samples in, you still need local access. Like, you can't do it remotely. Or at least, yeah, but I not mean, very this likely. is still like, you have to consider the threat model of a phone. A threat model of your phone, your physical device, isn't so much about the remote attacks. Your threat is the physical access to it. Like, that's part of your threat model for it. It's not part of the threat model when you're talking about, like, you know, a kernel vulnerability. You're not as worried about certain things. Uh, given the phone's threat model, though, the fact, you know, phone can end up in someone else's hands, you know, all of that, I think it's fair. Um, I, I would agree that some thought should be given to the unsupervised... Oh, yeah, uh, template should be given. It's like, it does illustrate that there is a potential for a severe issue here. Uh, just because it's not going to count or impact everybody doesn't mean that it should just be ignored. Definitely not. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, their statement about uh, it needs to be looked at more is wrong. It's more just, I have a bit of an issue with saying it highlights the severity of it, because... It doesn't say how severe it is, though. It just says it highlights the severity. Like, there is a severity to it. It doesn't yeah. really say... Like, it doesn't say it highlights it as being, you know, insanely insecure or something. It's just... It highlights the severity of it. I don't know. I mean, I guess I could understand that phrase being read to be... You know, they're, like, as saying it's really secure, but when I read that... I just read that as kind of a filler text where you just kind of you're trying to pad the length so it highlights yeah. the severity it showcases the severity of it like doesn't really comment on how severe it is just it showcases it that's how I read it yeah I mean what I wanted to add in there too though is like if you could pull this attack in like a like one time use kind of thing like you know if you're in like a coffee shop and somebody um swipes your phone and does that and then can pull it off it would be a lot more serious but from what i gather about this attack it needs to be carried out over a period of time like you need it that needs time to be able to get the, i'm not sure it needs uh time you just need to be able to trigger the update which is which is uh when you unlock the device you do so need to inject could... a fair amount of samples though to be able to poison it effectively so 
that's you know what how many just, samples it was i i didn't see an actual number i thought because their demo only really showed like four or five samples they have number of injection attempts here um iar what is iar what does that stand for I'm trying to find where they define it do they really not define what iar is in this context let me just go to the beginning see if they yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't uh, matter. But yeah, it, yeah but uh, I mean, it might be in there. Um, but yeah, I didn't I didn't look for the actual, uh, you know, like median amount of samples or whatever it took to compromise it. <clears throat> yeah, they keep using this IAR term. It doesn't seem very intuitive. I don't even, yeah, the first use, they don't define what it is. So kind of wish they did that, but you know, whatever. Not too big of a deal. Um, so yeah, I mean, Overall inclusion, I, I think it's it could practically be used, especially when you bring up that spousal example. But uh, yeah, it's definitely, definitely not limited. A, like, like it yeah. needs to be targeted. It's not something that's just like you know your random person's going to be targeted by it. It's it really takes some intent and some planning to do. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So we'll move on to the next white paper, which is the Memory Ranger. Uh, preventing hijacking of the file object structure in Windows. So I will say I like this paper's formatting. Font is nice and big. I don't have to zoom in on the page to be able to read stuff easily. You're um, getting old. I know. <laughs> so I just wanted to like, I, I wanted to praise it a little bit with the formatting, but some of it is worded kind of badly. And what I mean by that is, this paragraph. So I'll talk a little bit about what the paper is before going into that. So it basically talks about um, Windows uh, kernel memory attacks. So, you know, once you, you know, do some memory corruption and you get, say, like a, an arbitrary read or write into kernel memory, um, this paper talks about what you can do after you get that. So I think this paper tunnels in on the file object structures. So you can basically yeah, well, use so an arbitrary. Oh, it yeah, talks about a particular attack where um, a driver will open a file in exclusive mode, so nothing else is supposed to be able to access that file while it's open. Like, it'll lock mm -hmm. the file. Um, and then it talks <clears throat> about a way that you, if you get uh, any sort of malicious code running in the kernel, running in another driver, whatever, you open, uh, you do create file to like any other file you want, and a file object gets created. And then you go in and modify your file object with data that gets copied from your victim's file object. So that one that's open in exclusive mode. You copy over four attributes from that one into your file object. And then you're able to access the file. Yeah. So, uh, this, so it's hijacking that file object. So this primarily appears to be like a data-only attack. It's not compromising, you know, instruction flow necessarily, but you're, you know, you're over you're tampering with heap data to get some sort of primitive in this case you know stealing away the uh yeah well you're getting access to the exclusive file, file. yeah yeah uh, so whatever um, sense of data is in there is what you're getting so what i did want to highlight that i thought was poorly worded was they said apart from os kernel and drivers kernel mode memory includes a lot of sensitive data structures which can be used by attackers which is of course true and then they say cpus do not provide any security features to prevent illegal access to that memory and that like when I first read that, that was confusing because like kernel memory is 
absolutely protected. But what they mean is it's not protected from itself. Like it's not isolated. So if you have um, ring zero code execution or whatever, you can do anything to any part of the kernel where they're saying that, you know, it should be isolated. So this yeah, driver that has say, this file object shouldn't be able to access another file object. I'll also comment there. I found their use of legal and illegal just to be a little bit funny. Their use of what, sorry? You their use of illegal and legal in the descriptions to be a little bit funny. I mean, it's not wrong. It just, you know, pr to prevent illegal access versus, you know, illegitimate or something. Oh, no, it just, it just read a little bit uh, weird to me. Yeah, illegal seems like, um, like when you think about illegal, when you hear about like kernel yeah. stuff, you may, you mainly think about like access violations. So like trying to write to non-writable memory. That's what I think of when I hear illegal. So I, that might be part of the, what you were saying there. Um, and yeah, and then they just go as a result, gaining rewrite access to kernel one memory. They can, you know, access any driver. Um, and how Windows has tried to prevent that is through PatchGuard. But they say that PatchGuard isn't incredibly effective because it has fixed memory regions that it protects. So it detects like my Microsoft drivers hijacking, um, but not necessarily all drivers is what I could gather from it. And they kind of use some data from recent CVEs published in 2018 to, to back up that claim. And, uh, and they talk about advanced persistent threats uh, using, like utilizing that against the Windows kernel uh, for exploits. So Fruity Armor, which we talked about before, um, and Sandcat, which I think we also talked about before. Um, I think we talked so, about both of them at the same time. Did we? Were they released at the same time? I, I don't remember for sure. I think they might be mentioned in the same report. Doesn't matter. Okay. So anyway, you know, they talk about these attacks, but they they propose a, their solution to it, and they call it Memory Ranger. And um, it does quite a few things uh, from what I can gather. It, it basically, it hooks kernel API calls. It, so it, it does a lot. I'm just going to say, reference. The, the solution is, let's add a hypervisor. Yeah. That's yeah, the solution. Run every driver in an isolated area. I add that isolation. I know hypervisors are all the rage, but everything does not need to be solved with a hypervisor. What do you mean? How can you say that? No. I mean, in fact, I think the hypervisors really should be our last line of defense, not our go-to defense for everything. So as much as, like, yeah. I don't, this isn't going to catch on. I really doubt it'll catch on. Well, um, here's here's one thing I did want to highlight. It says that it tracks memory accesses, so all forms, read, write, execute, and they have extended page tables for each like new driver that gets initialized, and they basically prevent attacks from one driver hitting the memory of another by using the extended page tables. But my problem with that is, if you're tracking all these read-write memory calls and, and execute calls, and you're hooking the kernel API calls and everything. That sounds like a lot of potential overhead and performance hit. And yeah, did, they, I don't recall they don't if they talk talked about, about it. performance. Yeah, I didn't think so. I mean, they talk about it a little bit. They have this quote, yeah, but not uh, not say, in sufficient detail. Oh no, they literally have one sentence. It says the processing experiments on Windows 10 have shown that developed updated memory ranger. That is weird. Worded really weirdly. It says it causes acceptable performance degradation what's acceptable <laughs> like there's no numbers at all about like any benchmarks of the performance hit like well, given acceptable... the uh intel performance hits from 
the micro architectural stuff. I guess forty percent is probably fair. <laughs> I mean, acceptable can mean a lot of things in different cases. <laughs> like you know, for me, I don't I don't really do too much CPU intensive stuff or anything like that. So maybe it would be acceptable for me. But if you're you know a server. <laughs> A server you know running a server probably not so much so i like they i wish they had actual numbers for the overhead and the fact that they don't kind of makes me wonder if you know they're not including it on purpose because it is kind of you know large overhead and they just don't want to include that because it makes it look bad <laughs> i mean that that's a bit cynical of me but you know well no but i mean you're right they just say acceptable they don't include even a percentage they include nothing like yeah, th that is like it, it would be better if they didn't even say acceptable. It would be better if they just didn't mention it. Yeah. The fact that they mention it makes me think they even thought to look at it and decided not to include that. Yeah. So, you know, I'm kind of I'm pretty skeptical, uh, skeptical just based on that. Well, I um, mean, a hypervisor solution is like a hypervisor can do a lot, but it is always introducing a fair chunk of performance hit like a significant yeah. performance hit i mean yeah okay yeah. not always like you can't have a reasonably light hypervisor but especially when you're trying to inject this is for this particular case like all of these things kind of start adding up where i just it's just not the right type of solution yeah exactly um one final thing I did want to hit on that they talked about was they have this future plan section. And the first thing they have is prevent process privilege escalation. And what they talk about is that most drivers, they say, uh, or at least the drivers they've looked at, don't really mess with the e-process structure. So that includes, I, th I don't really do Windows stuff, but I think that's similar to like the thread structure in Linux, right? It holds the process credentials, um, tokens, all that kind of stuff is stored in that structure. So they're essentially proposing blocking um, drivers from tampering with the process structures. Um, but what I wonder is if there are legitimate cases where that's used, you know? Like yeah, if that, that would I don't cause... know offhand, so I yeah. can't actually comment on it. But I mean, I there mean, most likely are legitimate reasons for it. And probably like antiviruses and stuff probably need to be able to you know, tamper with that structure. Um, I mean, yeah, it's just, I think this this little portion would be interested interesting to get more information on. Because if you could block the, like, if you could block the I think the it would have been better for that, them to look at these types of protections rather than just jump straight to hypervisor. I think so too, yeah. Like this, I mean, reads as a lot more interesting than, oh yeah, we can fix this with hypervisor. It's like, of course you can. You can fix a ton of problems with <laughs> hypervisors. We know that. Yeah, I mean, it's I, this is would be an interesting point of research because if you could block that, that could be a really useful mitigation for trying to block privilege escalation. You could probably work around it. You know, well, you could definitely work around it in different ways, but you know, it, it makes it harder to do. So I think that would be an interesting area to research. I kind of wish they, yeah, like you said, they had more focus on those kinds of mitigations than the one they went with yeah. so yeah so we'll uh we'll move on to the uh hey google what exactly do your security patches tell us i must say i i really like the name play on the hey google uh prompt um so <laughs> apologies i don't understand <laughs> 
Did you just hear that? Yes, I did. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the stream did too. Oh my god, that was perfect. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I mean, I know it said didn't understand, but maybe you should ask it again. Maybe it'll tell <laughs> us. Maybe it'll read the paper. Uh, but yeah, I, I kind of include this, like, just... We talked about it before with one of Google's releases, I think, that had a bunch of stats. So this yeah, just kind of touches a, on a lot of yeah. the same stuff, which is kind of interesting to see. Not quite. So I did want to bring that up. So on the previous stream we did that we talked about the Android stuff, they mostly talked about uh, vulnerability classes, areas where the vulnerabilities are. This paper seems to focus more on the logistics of the patches and stuff like that. Yeah, well, that's where they're basing it off of. And yeah, it goes into those logistics. But it does talk about like, um, you know, 22% of the issues were failure to constrain operations to a memory buffer. It does talk about that, which was similar to the other one that we talked about. Yeah. Uh, where it talks about some of those issues, but I felt like there are definitely some things lacking with how they do it. Like like I said, 22% were this failure to constrain operation to memory buffer, but they also had 4% were out-of-bound read and 4% was out-of-bound write, which sounds yeah. like a failure to constrain an operation to a memory buffer. Yeah. But it's split out, so... There are a couple issues like that, which seemed a little bit weird, but it was it was still just some interesting statistics within this. Yeah, I think what I found the most interesting was they said that there was a significant delay in patching when it uh, when the vulnerabilities originated from either the Linux community, which I'm assuming they mean like you know desktop or or server, like not mobile, obviously, um, or uh, when they involve certain uh, Qualcomm components. So Qualcomm does like the SOC stuff, uh, Snapdragon line. So, you know, Linux. So I, I should say that it doesn't seem to be a fault on Linux. It seems to be a fault on Android porting Linux patches. So I, let me just go to the page. They had a page that actually had like statistics of, you know, the median amount of days that it took between Linux putting out a patch and Android porting that to the, to their code base i think it's still further down i th yeah i think you're right um i didn't realize this report was actually so many pages i wish i wrote down the page number that i found that on uh actually i i could probably let me just see i think it's the next section i had uh rabbits not being very nice here i they had 307 days listed so yeah yeah there it is so they basically say that qualcomm uh, as a uh, the mean number of days it took to patch a uh, port a patch from Qualcomm uh, for mobile devices with was 307 days, and with Linux it was 324 days, which is quite interesting because I don't see why it would be so difficult to port Linux patches to the Android code base because it's like it seems like well, it would be straightforward. It could be straightforward, but I imagine there's just kind of the I imagine kind of Android and Linux have deviated quite a bit by this point. Yeah. That it's know. not as simple as just, oh, find the same file and do that. But like, there's more to it. And especially as you consider the architectural differences too. Yeah. Uh, that can add to it. Um, I still feel like that's a pretty long period of time to apply a patch. But like yeah. I could understand a few things just coming from how much has changed. But yeah. I don't even know how much has changed. Like that's not 
not an area I really get into, so maybe I'm overestimating it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that that's a fair benefit of the doubt. Um, so that seems to be like an incompetency thing. But then there was another uh, quote they had, which seems a bit more nefarious, where they put, for 94% of patched Android vulnerabilities, the data disclosure in public data sets is not before the patch release date, which makes it seem like they're, they're fudging the uh, disclosure dates on the... Uh, on the vulnerability reports. I don't know if you saw that. I thought that was a uh, pretty like, why? You know what well, I mean? Like, why I mean, all that? that's more saying that, um, I, I'm just trying to read it here. Um, I, I don't think they go too in depth on that. I mean, it's they basically saying it that they're disclosed point, but... before the patch is released. I don't know if that's really saying they're fuzzing or sorry, fudging anything. Oh, okay, wait, okay. I think I misread it's... that. I think you're right. Yeah. The date of disclosure and public data says it's not before the patch release date. Yeah, like I, I don't see that as nefarious. Yeah, I think I misread it, so that's okay. my bad. Yeah. Yeah, I had to um, reread it a couple times to try and get what you were saying. Yeah, some of it is I feel like they could have worded that a bit better, but yeah, I'll take I'll take blame for that one. Um you're and fired. They, we're not doing another episode. Ah, oh, damn. That's <laughs> why we're taking a few months break. I'm being put on leave. Yeah, um, I knew this would happen. <laughs> um, and then the you know last quote that was interesting is they said that there's m more uh, attacks and vulnerabilities. So they stated in 2016, um, the number of publicly disclosed vulnerabilities was around 6,000. And then 2017, it went up to 14,000. And then in 2018, it went up to 16,000. So, you know, as the years goes on, there's like way more, like it more than doubled. Well, yes, but I think, um, I think if you actually take a look further down, they talk about, uh, they talk about some of those numbers and the 2016 numbers only included like five months or something. Only included what, sorry? Five months. It oh, wasn't okay, the entire year. It was like from where they started like okay. releasing the information or something. And like they had a little footnote basically saying like, you know, the one year here is really low. Because if that's true. Although maybe that was 2015. Hmm. If that is true, I feel like they should have put that next to that statement, though, still, because that is an important note that should be kept close. by. OK, this is where I was true. thinking of it. It's somewhere around here. Okay. Uh, but it's it's a different number. Oh, yeah, that 2015, the number of patched vulnerabilities still me for uh, five months. Yeah, 2015. Yeah, so that's not the same. But it's also a different number of vulnerabilities than what we were seeing up there. So it's talking about something different, too. Yeah, okay. Still, I mean, um, mobile is definitely being attacked more often. I mean, 2017 seems like it was the highest. Like, you kind of had that peak there, but this is only covering, you know, five years, not even. Yeah. I mean, Android has always been a little bit behind security in the mobile area. Uh, in, well, I mean, iOS. there's only Apple and Android. Like, being behind is being behind Apple, Apple, who has really been on top of the game. Yeah. Well, the biggest issue, and this paper also touches on it, is the software update things, which uh, Google is trying to fix. Um, yeah. But, like, upda uh, software updates uh, in Android is not streamlined by any means. Whereas Apple, it's 
very streamlined. So, um, well, that kind of comes down. Apple has the benefit of knowing all the hardware, making all the hardware. Yeah. Yeah, they don't have to deal with vendors like Samsung and yeah. Huawei. And like, there's these. definitely a bigger challenge for Google uh, with Android and doing that than with Apple. Apple's definitely used that to their advantage, though. Yeah. So that's one thing with Android is end-day vulnerabilities are a lot more valuable than they are on iOS. So this talks mostly about zero days, right? Like new vulnerability discoveries. Um, so when you combine that, that, you know, there's so many being found and they talk about the security issues and then you combine that with how much more effective end days are. Um, I think there definitely needs to be a lot more focus on Android. So I kind of like this paper uh, talking about the logistics of uh, vulnerability patching and stuff like that, because, you know, I've, I've said it before on previous podcasts, people are very willing, like enthusiastic to try to air other companies out to dry like apple for their vulnerability patches i think they've had you know some bad patches before where they were patched incompletely and uh an exploit could go around the patch they did and they got under fire for that and google seems to be people aren't as you know willing to go after them for their uh vulnerability patching and stuff like that i think google has had a lot of goodwill towards them uh, a lot of what's a lot of goodwill towards them yeah, like Google has kind of been that uh, you know, that favorite company or the special company that's always been treated pretty well by people. Everybody's always like that, but that goodwill has been disappearing in the last several years. That's been eroding, and we're seeing more hate driven towards Google, especially since they removed the "do no evil" from there. <laughs> uh, like, yeah. really, like I mean, that wasn't the turning point by any means, but that was around when. I think a lot of the goodwill that was had towards Google as being kind of this almost an underdog. I mean, they weren't really, but I don't know. There, there was a lot of like Google was always kind of the fan favorite. People liked Google as a company, and that's yeah. changing. Yeah, I just think a, I think more people need to start looking at Google's stuff and start you know giving them the same amount of scrutiny that people are giving Apple. Um, because there are definitely issues and potentially more issues. And I think they've just been kind of avoided and not really talked about because, you know, people have a bit of a bias against Apple in terms of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, like obviously, you know, there's Google's project zero, which I love to talk about is how they always look. They always look at WebKit and, uh, iOS and OSX and all of that. Yeah. But I mean, there's a very clear motivation for that. Yeah. Like, I don't entirely blame them. Like, I mean, they're, it's their company. Like, Google's going to publicize against their rival company. It, it makes sense. But but there's no teams, really, that are able to do it against Google. Like, there there isn't really any other teams like Project Zero that are going after Google products. There aren't a lot of teams change. like Project Zero, period. Apple could exactly. start a team like that. They won't. <laughs> no, they, they don't won't. care. But they could. <laughs> they could, yeah. But I mean, um, we sh- we need more teams like Project Zero. I I don't know if we'll get them. We probably won't. But you know, if there is another team like Project Zero, it needs to be the opposite. They need to be going against Google stuff. <laughs> to be fair, I'm sure Project Zero also targets Google stuff. Like I'm sure that Google still fuzzes their own stuff. 
Oh, it's just not publicized. It's just they don't publicize those issues when they find it, yeah. But but I think they need some of that public pressure where Apple's getting it. I think Google starts is going to need to start getting it too to, to kind of kickstart their security towards the direction that Apple's going, if that makes sense. I don't sense. know. I mean, I think, I think Google has been taking some of the right steps lately. Like, we've They've talked about steps. some of the changes in Android and stuff. Uh, I can't... I mean, yeah, they're not as well defended as apple but mm -hmm. they are taking some of the right steps i don't really fault google on that okay yeah i mean that's fair i mean yeah we've talked about it a bit before even whether we're that transparency report we were talking about a little bit earlier uh was really nice and like i don't think ios has anything like that published because apple's really tight on their security too so i mean yeah, yeah apple's google tight has on some... everything yeah um so google has some good things going for it that's true uh i just think it it needs more public attention so that's that's pretty much where i'll leave that um so do we do we want to move on to talking about osx gatekeeper uh just before we touch on that i will just say because we haven't uh from the uh from the reported issues, like I mentioned, 22% were a failure to constrain operations to a memory buffer. And then they had like the two that were out of bound read and write, which sounded really familiar. But like their big four issues that they patched were the failure to constrain, info exposure, access control, and improper input validation. Like there feels like a lot of overlap in there. Uh, but I did just want to point out that those were their big four. Over 50% of the issues fell into that category. Okay. Um, before we move into the OSX, I just noticed in the chat by Debma, there's a message saying, is an Apple strength that's marketing an image? Um, absolutely. Like that is a big part of their brand is the Apple brand is like, you know, their yeah, major like, selling point. I don't point. think anyone buys Apple because of the security aspect, but because they do everything in house, like they build their own chips, they do all of that in house. They're able to be very tight lipped about stuff and they're able to... Uh, because they have such a hard control over all the hardware and everything, they're able to do a lot of the security really easily. They're able to implement that into the whole pipeline, and it's there, it's seamless. They're just able to do it. Like That's just the strength of how Apple works, uh, but it's not really part of their marketing. Um, like Nobody's really buying well, it because of... Well, I mean, maybe it is pointed out a bit. But, yeah, I was going to say, like, you know, I remember when there was that big law enforcement case where the FBI was trying to get into a phone. They did push, like, um, their privacy stuff. They yeah, do try to so, push that a little bit into the marketing aspect of how, you know, they everything's encrypted and, and the security of their phones, now it's locked down. They do market it a little bit, but not nearly as much as the image. Yeah, like, generally, um, like, if people are buying the iPhone, it's usually the security isn't what they're thinking about. It is... The yeah. whole brand that Apple has developed. That said, I will actually say, like, there's also the whole idea that, you know, OS X doesn't get viruses. For a long time, the MacBooks were just virus-free and everything. That was part, <laughs> like, not necessarily, I don't know if that was really in their marketing, but that was part of the general view on Apple. So maybe I'm wrong about commenting on the security. That said, I mean, I, I'm really just arguing here that Apple has a huge advantage because of... um how much control they have over the entire process that they're able to implement a lot of security that just isn't really that feasible for Android 
when they have to support, you know, all of these different OEMs. Yeah. And I mean, one thing I do want to say is even though it's not like necessarily part of their marketing, uh, in terms of mobile, I like iOS security is super strong. Uh, their, their biggest security point is probably their sandboxing. Their sandboxing is insane. Um, the amount of attack surface you have from, uh, let's say the browser, for example, is super limited compared to a lot of other products. Um, but uh, as I'm going to touch on in this article, they, they kind of neglect OSX, which we've talked about in the past. Or at least in my opinion, they seem to, you know, they focus OSX a lot of their security isn't. on it. Like iOS has gotten a lot of attention. I think part of that's just because they didn't have as much history with it. They were able to build something new and do security from the beginning. That wasn't so yeah. much the case with OS X. Yeah. So we'll talk a, a little bit about that here. Because, um, so this this Gatekeeper bypass was published on the 24th of May. And so Gatekeeper, for those of you who don't have Macs or aren't familiar with the term, it's basically that pop-up you get. So if you try to install an application that's not from the App Store, it's not signed by Apple, um, you'll get a prompt saying, this isn't from the Apple Store, do you still want to install it? And Gatekeeper is basically responsible for that. Um, but two major design points for Gatekeeper is it considers programs from external drives and network shares to be uh, safe and so they don't prompt for that, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what they say. And that was, like, as soon as I saw that, I knew where this was going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they basically combined those to uh, do an attack. So the yeah. scenario they give is... Well, so they combined that, but I, I think the actual attack here is zip files, when you unzip a file, um, the file names can basically be whatever you want them to be, or the files can point, they can be a shortcut, they can be a symlink. They can point to other places. When you extract the file, then you have like a shortcut or a symlink, it just points to another file. So this is really common in web apps where they'll extract a zip automatically. You'll include like either a file name like dot dot slash dot dot slash, you'll do directory traversal and the file and overwrite like some other file when it extracts it. Cause it's just like, okay, let's just put that path in. The other thing, though, that you can do is have it extract with a symlink, so it'll give you access to, like, Etsy password. Uh, so it's really common in web attacks to do this with zips. Uh, so in this case, you do a symlink, but you point it to this uh, slash net, your attack domain.com, and then, like, have it set up on a share on that domain. And thanks to auto or auto mount FS, It'll automatically mount your share on like a remote domain and it'll just trust it because it's a share. Yeah. So it, it's it's more of a, like an architectural design flaw than it is like a, you know, like a low level bug. So the funny thing is, is where I wanted to jump in the discussion where Apple doesn't seem to really care too much about the uh, OS X security as opposed to iOS they stated that the vendor was contacted on February 22nd and the issue was supposed to be addressed on May 15th. And then Apple just started dropping their emails. So it's from, it seems to still be a zero day. Um, the workaround that they put out is basically just to disable auto mount. So I guess if you don't need auto mount, that's a fair, which I feel like most people really don't. Yeah. 
That, that's uh, that said, I guess in a business environment, it might be a little bit more common to use it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is def this is another one of those things where it takes a little bit of social engineering to kind of get there. But I mean, it's still you know a very reasonable attack. It's really easy to pull off. I mean, it, because it's not like just a simple bug that you can apply a patch for. I I do playing devil's advocate. I can see it being a little bit more difficult to deal with. Um, because it is a design flaw, so like, how do you really fix it, right? I mean, well, I think the biggest thing would mount, just be, but... you know, disable mounting of remote, uh, like non-local network stuff, so internet. Or at least make it a permission that's by default disabled or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like, I mean, it would be one thing to automatically mount a network share. It's a lot less common, I think, to mount a domain, like a completely remote domain. Yeah. But I mean, uh, there's. We talked about another issue that involved setting up a share like that, didn't we? A little while back. I, like I feel like of, we did, but I can't remember what it was. So It was the QT plugins. You could do the plugin path. Do oh, a network share. yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right. So I think this is really comes down to an issue with shares over the internet which i don't think are really used too often maybe somebody will probably come and correct me and tell me about how it's super important we have that but that just seems like a feature that isn't necessary or that you know could be behind an extra permission maybe not isn't necessary i could imagine because i've done like ssh fs before yeah uh so like i could understand a use for it just you know locking it behind an additional permission to actually communicate outside of the local network although yeah. that wouldn't necessarily be something that osx does i'm not sure if auto mount fs is part of osx or if that's just the default program like that's included yeah and another potential patch point uh they mention here is uh the software that's responsible for decompressing the zip files don't perform checks on the sim links so that that would be another point would be I mean, that's also kind of a feature of zip files to have those sim links. So the fact that a zip file has them. Yeah, I guess like, you can't really. I was going to say maybe you could blacklist certain ones, but it seems like with this kind of attack, you could. That wouldn't be. A... No, I, I think that's the wrong layer. I mean, yes, when you're like on web apps, we definitely tell people like, you know, check for sim links, check for directory traversals and the names as you're. Uh, looping through the zip like that's that's a protection but in this case it's just a general generic zip handler that'll extract the files yeah it's um i mean it's part of zip files yeah you'd break some Use features the tar. doing that so. i don't actually know if tar supported or not <laughs> they might yeah so it seems at least at the moment this is a zero day so we can keep up that uh you know, mantle of having a zero day. Have have we had one every episode? I'm actually not know. sure. I mean, we've always had yeah. exploits, but not. I'm not sure about unpatched exploits. Yeah. So at least this episode has an unpatched exploit. Um, and then the the final page that we have up for the day. We're not going to talk about it too much. Just kind of you know. Yeah. Uh, this is this is, is more this just sharing an interesting little write up. Um, I thought it was just a fun. 
right up just because they their exploit technique they chose to rather than just using like a they had execution to do like a rock chain or something they chose to search memory and basically just disable safe mode and this is a kind of classic technique out of right once pwn anywhere uh old i guess it's not that old like 2014 black hat i think uh but yeah. they chose to do that enable good old activex objects on the page and then you get your code execution through the scripting engine uh it's just kind of a fun little write-off i think you had some things you actually want to talk about from it though uh i just wanted to say that you know as far as browser exploits go uh let me just go to the poc not the full poc just the one they had um it's it seems to unless i misread something it seems to be like a purely a dom exploit pretty much and it does it through vb script so uh the rabbit's kind of uh freaking out on me here and i can't really read what that says because the text is blurry but um you know, yeah, it, I can't read that either, actually. Goddamn rabbit. Um, but yeah, it seems it's it seems to be like a more simple browser exploit than a lot of you know the ones that I've seen. Uh, I didn't want to go too in depth on it. I just thought that, that you know that was an interesting. Yeah, point. I mean, this is a write up. If if you want to read it, go actually read it from them, not us trying to summarize it. Well, yeah. Which is definitely what I recommend to go take a look at this write up. And another thing I will say is this does seem to me more of like a fun thing it's probably not something you would see weaponized in the wild because it's internet explorer internet explorer is pretty much dead uh it it has to you know it has to be ie8 or lower for the emulation level i mean it's just it's not really practical you know what i mean like most people are who use who or who used to use internet explorer probably using edge now or you know chrome like Internet Explorer, I know very some small local government here still uses IE6. Really? Okay. IE6 so may maybe. is still mandated for some of them, yeah. That's sad. <laughs> but, okay, so maybe it is a little bit more practical than I thought. Um, but yeah, just if you're interested in browser exploits, it looks like a pretty cool write-up um, talking about, you know, like DOM uh, methods and stuff like that, and fast paths, which is like the the big thing in browser exploitation so if you're interested in that definitely take a look at that write-up it looks to be fairly accessible uh as in it doesn't look like you have to have too much of a background in browser exploitation to be able to read it so yeah we'll have that in the description below uh so you just wanted to bring that up and just uh including it has something worth reading yeah so yeah, that, that's pretty much all the topics that we wanted to cover. On yeah, this, I will this remind podcast. everybody that we will be gone now for several months, uh, likely until at least November. Yeah, um, do, though we do plan to put out other media. Yeah, just not um, this particular weekly stream. Yeah, I mean, I may do one or two episodes just where, um, like, after DEF CON, because I'm planning on going to DEF CON this year. So, you know, if I have some thoughts on that. Uh, I might stream that because um, I think it would be an interesting discussion. Although I'd, I'd be monologuing because you're not, you're obviously not going to DefCon. So yeah, so yeah, I, I just, might do a stream or two. But to it toss just... that reminder in there though. That we aren't going to be back. Next yeah, week, it won't unfortunately. be. Like, we will be back. Like... We're not done with the podcast. Um, it's just yeah. not in the immediate future. Yeah. So yeah, that that'll be our last podcast for a little while. And uh, 
yeah so we'll see you guys probably so you said around november right Beginning. that would be my guess yeah obviously i'm walking yeah. a fair distance might take a little longer a little shorter you know probably you know uh sprain your leg again <laughs> whatever <laughs> be back here in a couple maybe only two months week. who knows back in a week yeah, yeah surprise um, we're actually doing the podcast still <laughs> Yeah. So just monitor our Twitter for updates. Uh, our Twitter is right in the image right now uh, at day zero sex. So you can check our Twitter. We'll have updates there regarding when the podcast will be back. Yeah. And, and I imagine when we come back, we're actually going to take it a bit more seriously and try and publicize it a bit more. So hopefully you'll just hear about it anyhow. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. So we'll see you guys uh, when we're back.